Prospect Lives. Southern Voices on Modern Britain. Despite the extremely hot weather, I was determined to have my holiday therapy. There is so much pain right in front of you, ringing your doorbell. When I was diagnosed with a serious mental illness, my first response was undiluted anger. Voice notes have all the intimacy of a phone call without the need for both people to be available at the same time. Being a sports fan in the 21st century requires you to engage with more important issues than whether United's back four is better off without Harry Maguire. We bounced across fields and smashed down a gatepost that was too narrow to pass. Hundreds of singers, radiant with joy and dedication, packed into the Albert Hall, making a thing of beauty of the Verdi Requiem. Welcome to Prospect Lives, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a family of regular prospect writers filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in July. Actor and writer Sheila Hancock was besieged in her home by a Trixie Mouse and a Wayward Crow, while Jason Thomas Vanillier, an expert by experience in the asylum system, reflected on the strain the cost of living crisis was placing on people's mental health. Farmer Tom had attended Groundswell, the Glastonbury of farming conferences, while Jen Zia, Serena Smith, was preparing herself for a summer of what she called revenge travel. This month, Anglican priest Alice Goodman reflects on how mental illness has shaped her parish, while Rebecca Lawrence looks at why debates about antidepressants make people so angry online, and Emma John examines the thorny ethical dilemmas that arise when consuming sport. But let's begin with Alice, who fondly remembers a particular student who suffered with mental illness. When I was a chaplain in Cambridge, there was one student gorgeous, witty, kind-hearted, clever, who used to visit me every so often, usually after lunch, and sit sideways on one of my armchairs. And we would drink tea and think of reasons to postpone suicide. We always found at least a couple. Trees, I remember, were one. The harm to the person who found your body was another. Is there a support group? I remember asking tentatively at one point. Yes, I run it, he replied. Like many members of the university, he'd been in and out of the hospital too. There were others. I remember carrying a container of holy water and a branch of rosemary to Neville's Court in Trinity College at the request of a young fellow to bless the rooms whose previous occupant had taken his own life a few months previously. If you said the name Fullborn at high table, a momentary silence would chill the air. Fullborn was short for Fullborn Hospital, or, as it had been formerly, Fullborn Asylum. My time as chaplain ended 11 years ago. The epidemic of mental ill health at the university has only got worse since then, and especially over the last two years. In Fullborn, the parish where I live, the name means the village. The hospital was built on the village edge in the mid middle of the 19th century. As years went by, houses were built for the staff on Fullborn's west side. 
There was even a pub called the Asylum Inn. People from the village became handymen and cleaners and ward attendants. After many years, patients began to move into the community. There was a halfway house on Cambridge Road with a big garden, tended by a big man named John who had studied horticulture until his first psychotic episode when he was 19. More recently, flats and sheltered bungalows were built. Former inpatients lived alone, with social worker at the end of the phone and scheduled visits. These are the margins of Cambridge life, the frayed edges. It is probable that the edges are no more nor less frayed in the 21st century than they were 40 years ago, when strays from the hospital would occasionally attempt to batter our back door down in a haze of terror and alienation, looking for home, no doubt. That's Fullborn Nick Coleman is writing about in The Train in the Night, his terrifying and lovely memoir of music and deafness. He remembers from the 1980s that Fullborn is one of the few places where there is no stigma attached to mental illness and for that reason it is blessed. Hardly idyllic, but blessed in a unique way. People suffer unspeakable mental pain and confusion here. Lives are shortened by taking or not taking their prescribed medications and by self-medicating. There are fresh flowers by the railway crossing near the supermarket again. There is no stigma. Only recognition and fellow feeling. It's part of my job to make sure that we keep it that way. My job has its own risks. You want your parish priest to be completely sane, and we so rarely are. I came to my vocation with a history of clinical depression. In those days, the church wanted people to demonstrate self-awareness so that you could see the black dog coming along the road before it jumped on you. I demonstrated this to everyone's satisfaction on multiple occasions, and so to the amusement of my family and friends, was given papers certifying my sanity. The problem comes when, as a priest, you feel the overwhelming responsibility to make things better. Then you find yourself in the situation of Miss Lonely Hearts in Nathaniel West's novella. There is so much pain, right in front of you, ringing your doorbell, on the phone, at the parish office, coming into church every day. So many true stories of terrible suffering, as well as the confused stories that open windows into the suffering of those who confide them. Priests burn out and go off the rails. The most recent response from the diocese has been to encourage courses in resilience. If you crack up, it's your own damn fault. You weren't resilient enough. We cannot bear this in our own strength. The day I moved to the rectory in Fullbourne, that student, the one who loved trees, phoned and asked to talk. Can I call you tomorrow? I asked. The movers are here and things are absolutely crazy. Of course, he said. He died that day and I go on, carrying his memory and my guilt 
understanding the intractable pain of where we are now. While Alice contends with a sense of overwhelming responsibility to ease the pain of others, Emma John asks, how can we become ethical sports fans? My friend Jenny and I had never discussed sport before this summer. She has the delicate frame and cocked head of a songbird and a personality to match. Jenny is drawn to the fragile things in life. Her favourite hobby is ceramics. When we meet up, she usually talks about the art exhibitions that have moved her recently, or which of our friends needs extra love and care right now. The competitive instinct to best others baffles her, and the sweaty rough and tumble of a physical contest holds even less appeal. I was surprised then when she got hooked on the Commonwealth Games, although less surprised to hear that her gateway sport was rhythmic gymnastics. Apparently, Gemma Frizzell's gold medal routine in the hoop final caught her attention, and she stuck around for the diving and then the pole vault, hypnotised by the athlete's bravery and mystical bendability. Her discovery of a new form of beauty proves that sport has something for everyone. After hours of watching, Jenny had questions for me about sport. I braced myself to be quizzed on the scoring system for the 10-metre synchro event. Instead, she asked, Is it okay to enjoy an event that celebrates an outdated colonial model and maintains the legacy of an exploitative empire? And what about the countries that are allowed to compete despite having laws that make homosexuality punishable by imprisonment or even death? Talking of brutality... Why is boxing acceptable when it looks like a socially sanctioned form of violence? Given the amount of time I spend watching sport, my inability to provide instant answers to these questions felt like a personal failing. It's not like I don't think about this stuff. Being a sports fan in the 21st century requires you to engage with more important issues than whether United's back four is better off without Harry Maguire or whether England can win back the ashes under Ben Stokes. Subjects now regularly debated within the sporting world include how it should respond to the anti-vax movement and the war in Ukraine, what position to take on women's and trans rights, not to mention its role in confronting structural racism and the Marxist or otherwise implications of taking the knee. I don't think sport or society is any worse for having those discussions. What is harder is figuring out how to respond when sport tries to excuse itself from ethical considerations. The sports industry is a commercial behemoth with a ravenous appetite. It is also an instrument of soft power whose values and ethics have proven very malleable indeed. The Football Association, for instance, has the so-called fit and proper persons test for club owners and directors designed to keep corruption and bad actors out of the game. And yet this doesn't seem to discourage greedy venture capitalists, dodgy billionaires or the investment arms of foreign powers with appalling human rights records. The growing trend of sports washing, where repressive regimes sponsor teams and events to help launder their reputations, means that it's increasingly hard to be an ethical consumer. Some decisions do come easily. I have no interest, for instance, in watching the new Live Golf Tour, the Saudi Arabian-funded rival to the PGA that is luring in big names to play for it. But there are less obvious examples. 
What about Newcastle United and Manchester City, teams that are both owned by companies with links to the royal families of Saudi Arabia and the UAE respectively? Should their fans boycott their own team? And what about Qatar, which will host the FIFA World Cup after a 12-year build-up of horror stories about the treatment of migrant workers during the construction of new stadiums? Should we boycott the event entirely? And what about international sports' vast carbon footprint? Does my support help sustain the unsustainable? Can you want to fight climate change and love motor racing? Even Lewis Hamilton seems to have had difficulty squaring the two. Perhaps, given the extraordinary array of sport we have to choose from, we need simple and transparent guidance on the ways to be conscientious consumers. After all, we know, at least in theory, how to shop ethically. We've learned the difference between battery farm chicken and free-range organic, between fast fashion and fair trade. Maybe what we need is a similar certification process for sport, so that we know our entertainment comes from responsible sources and that no one is harmed in the making of it. While Emma figures out what to advise her friend, Gen Zia Serena Smith has some rules of texting etiquette to share. Merry Christmas. This was the first text message ever sent from engineer Neil Papworth to his colleague Richard Jarvis in December 1992. Now, an estimated 23 billion texts are sent worldwide every day. Like Papworth, I also wished a bunch of my friends and family a Merry Christmas over text last December. But unlike Papworth, I would never dream of sending the angry, all caps words, Merry Christmas, or Merry Christmas with a pointed full stop at the end of the message. Instead, I went for variations of Merry Christmas, with a few exclamation marks at the end, and Merry Christmas, with three kisses. The social codes of texting have changed dramatically since 1992. Just opening a conversation is a minefield. A light-hearted, hi babe, is worlds apart from a curt hey. And if someone texts me, hi Serena, with my name in the message, I immediately panic and start racking my brain for reasons why the sender might be annoyed at me. Voice notes, short audio files which you can send over iMessage, Facebook, Instagram or WhatsApp, have also changed the game. WhatsApp introduced them in 2013 and now nearly 200 million are sent every month. They're like Marmite. Most people either love them or hate them. Personally, I love them and will quite happily prattle on about the minutiae of my day what I had for lunch, the nice dog I saw, whether I should go to Sainsbury's later, and send it over to a friend. But equally, I've been guilty of seeing my best friend send me five voice notes in a row, thinking, I'll listen to that later, and then realising six days later that I never responded. And when I do eventually listen, I'll inevitably be roped into listening to 30 seconds of, yeah, so, like, what happened is, he was like, wait, Let me start again. It's ironic. Texting was meant to make communication easier, but it can be much harder to discern someone's tone over text, especially with inflections as subtle as sarcasm. It's not as straightforward as tacking a crying laughing emoji onto the end of a message either. Sorry, but you are officially old if you unironically use emojis. Your options are lol, which can sometimes come across quite passive-aggressive, haha, Again, this sounds too abrupt. Or my personal favourite, LMAO, which translates as a hyperbolic but less blunt laughing my ass off, for those who didn't know.
That said, lol with multiple O's or ha 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 are also good options. Complicated? Definitely. But there are some advantages to young people being hyperconscious of tone of voice over text. I know, for example, that Royal Mail would never text me, your order has been shipped. Please click here for more information. But a scammer would. Some people also use tone indicators online, which are paralinguistic signifiers to help clarify what a person's tone is. For example, slash J at the end of a sentence means the author is joking. For people who struggle with nonverbal cues in everyday conversation, communicating like this online can make life considerably easier. It's also just helpful to have all these different ways to express yourself. I'm not the most loudest or verbose person in real life, but behind a screen with a keyboard at my fingertips, I often find it easier to get my point across. Voice notes too can be a lifesaver if you've got a lot to say. Nobody wants to type out or read a potted novel recounting the ugly details of your recent breakup or your latest workplace drama. With a voice note, you can just hit record and let the words flow out. Why don't we just pick up the phone? Well, as any 20-something knows, it's almost impossible to find a time when you and a friend are both free for the same half an hour. Voice notes have all the intimacy of a phone call without the need for both people to be available at the same time. In any case, most of Gen Z are chronically afraid of phone calls anyway. I think if one of my friends called me totally out of the blue, I'd assume something dreadful had happened. Of course, nothing tops speaking to your friends and family face to face. Nothing beats seeing their eyes sparkle as they tell you about a great first date or their smile as you tell them about your promotion at work. But with my loved ones dotted about the country, most of the time, a text or a voice note has to suffice. And I'm fine with that, so long as no one ever sends me a K. While Serena welcomes the growth in online communication, Sheila Hancock feels that the world is becoming a crueler place. Has the world become more unstable, more ugly, more vicious? Or was it always like that, just less overtly? Or am I just feeling my age? I was watching the tennis the other day. One of the players' behaviours verged on the psychotic, talking and swearing to himself, shouting hysterically at the umpire, his coach, the audience. Then the other participant freaked out too, whacking one ball hard at his opponent's body, then another dangerously into the crowd. I remember a time when we were shocked by a little badinage from the spoilt brat John McEnroe and even more by a glimpse of lace on Gussie Moran's knickers. But nowadays there is a new level of bad behaviour. The game was not stopped and the hitherto staid denizens of Wimbledon reacted by cheering and stamping, thereby encouraging the disturbing goings-on. In the old days, the joy of cricket was lounging in the sun, listening to the gentle sound of leather on willow. Nowadays, the sport is accompanied by a cacophony of shouting, cheering, racist abuse and banging drums, while men in grubby tracksuits, elegant whites being only seen now in dated dramas, 
snarl at one another on the pitch in an apparently permitted practice called sledging. Certainly things feel more unstable to me. We are living our lives against the backdrop of a sadistic war in Ukraine and have just got rid of a Prime Minister who rode roughshod over our democratic institutions. Or have we? His dying days were full of denial and threats of an imminent return a la Trump. I feel we have not seen the last of that dangerously volatile personality and his smiling, nodding acolytes. I am not alone in my disquiet. I have been doing countrywide book tour events, which often involve a question and answer session. On one occasion, a sedate looking woman in the audience stood up and said calmly and firmly that she had lost faith in everything she should trust and had until now trusted the government, the police, the church, the press, and even after the revelations of its corrupt portrayal of its workers, the post office. People seem to feel strongly that our moral compass has gone missing. What can we do about it is the cry that always comes up. One good thing about the Boris Johnson affair is that it eventually created a wave of disgust from the public that even the most servile and self-serving politicians had to respond to. During several of my exciting Q&A sessions, normally restrained book lovers were ready for revolution, but settled for an onslaught of letters to their MP. Lest I should be overpleased with myself at the warm reception of my book, one of the reviews was without doubt the most vicious that I have ever received for anything in my 70-year career. Some over that time have been harsh, I've done a lot of rubbish, but it feels that comment nowadays in the press and especially on social media competes to inflict the most lacerating wound. My personal life has definitely become unstable. No plans can be made with any certainty. I booked to go to France and the flights were cancelled. The weather turned vicious and confined us to our homes again. While the out-of-control sun set fire to fields and houses. I was due to work on a film and then Covid struck me, bringing another 10-day isolation with a violent cough, agonising sore throat and chronic headache. It's like a mild cold. Oh, really? Once again, left to my own thoughts and unable to talk them through with anyone face to face, everything definitely felt to me to be unstable, ugly, vicious. Until the first night of the proms. Oh, blessed BBC. I switched the television over from a pathetic debate between prospective prime ministers, God help us, to see hundreds of singers radiant with joy and dedication packed into the Albert Hall, making a thing of beauty of the Verdi Requiem. There was a huge orchestra and two massive choirs. One charmingly from Crouch End, 
wonderful grey-haired men singing their guts out, and make-up-less women, bright and glowing of the sheer thrill of being part of something so transcendental. Then there was Massabane Cecilia Rangwanasha. I think she came down from heaven for the gig, and is actually an angel. Then there was Massabane Cecilia Rangwanasha. I hope that's the right pronunciation. I think she came down from heaven for the gig and is actually an angel. Her voice floats or roars out of her, effortless, soaring, full of passion. It's supernatural. God must be involved. So once again, music comes to my rescue. Never mind my elderly angst. For a couple of magic hours, life was the very reverse of unstable, ugly, vicious. It was glorious. While Sheila takes refuge from current events in classical music, Jason Thomas Vanillier enjoys some holiday therapy. Despite extremely hot weather, I was determined to have my holiday therapy this year. With the stress of inflation, escalating energy bills and a toxic political climate, we must sometimes get away from the noise and enjoy the lighter things in life. I love taking every opportunity to explore the beautiful landscapes and the different cultures the UK has to offer. Over the summer, the great British seaside gave me many delights. I started by visiting Cleethorpes on the estuary of the Humber the closest coastal town to Doncaster. As a pescatarian, fish and chips is perfect for me and Cleethorpes did not disappoint. The locals were really friendly and down to earth and the pubs had great karaoke and bingo. Relaxing at the beach was my highlight of the day. I'm from the Southern Caribbean, so I'm always game for a beach run. For another day trip in June, I travelled to Carlisle in Cumbria. I must say, it's the first time that I've heard what to my ears sounds like the different dialect of the Geordie language, the history of the city and the administrative role it has played in the northwest of England through the centuries is fascinating, and its particular geography sitting just a few miles away from the Scottish border added to my interest. My birthday was in July and I treated myself to a short break in Pembrokeshire in Wales, another first for me. Travelling there took a long time, two coaches and a train, which required rigorous planning and budgeting in advance for me to be able to afford it. Pembrokeshire Travelodge was so wonderful to stay at brilliant staff and services. Pembrokeshire is an absolute gem. I was spoilt by the breathtaking landscapes, the castle near the national park, the coastal paths and the beaches. I also got to visit the seaside town of Tenby. Authentic Welsh lava bread was delicious. My friends and I celebrated my birthday with the Full Throttle Festival. And what better place to party than Headingley in Leeds. Back home, I used to watch the West Indies play England on TV in so many cricket matches at 
the ground. So it was an absolute delight to be staying ten minutes away, a special memories for me. As it was the first place in the north of England, I was dispersed too from the Home Office temporary accommodation in Birmingham in 2017. Headingley is a lively suburban area with a healthy student population from the campus of Leeds Beckett University. It has great restaurants with cuisines from the Mediterranean, Caribbean, Southeast Asia and India. The Headingley Tap is a wonderful day and night out with open mic nights, karaoke and live music. I had such a great birthday. Leeds is the cultural juggernaut in West Yorkshire. It's got so much potential. I rounded off my summer with visits to Hastings and Scarborough. I've been to Scarborough multiple times, and it's always a sabbatical from all one's worries. A night out there is truly a good crack. When the heaviness of life is upon you, you have to find a little bit of happiness where you can, because you never know when it will all end. Times of hardship bring clarity about what matters. When you look back at your life, joyful memories are the most important things of all. After recent study on depression has sparked a war on Twitter, psychiatrist Rebecca Lawrence argues that the anger surrounding mental illness is understandable but unproductive. I've been thinking a lot about anger and how we talk online about mental illness and its treatment. This has been driven, at least in part, by the recent publication of a scientific review by Professor Joanna Moncrief and colleagues disproving the chemical imbalance theory of depression. Most clinicians and academics had already accepted that this theory is far too simplistic, so it didn't come as much of a surprise. But then, on social media, fearsome arguments began. If the theory is wrong, how could antidepressant pills work? Most doctors will agree that we don't know how lots of medications work. Try googling paracetamol and mode of action and you will soon see that there is no easy explanation. But large randomised controlled trials have established that antidepressants can be helpful to patients, even if we don't know exactly how. That's not unusual. Scientists often discover that something works and then look for the reason why afterwards. Indeed, if you always worked from first principles, you would never get off the starting line. However, some clinicians and patients have misinterpreted Moncrief's review as new evidence that antidepressants don't work, perhaps as part of their wider arguments against the medicalisation of mental distress. These views have been forcefully and emotionally expressed on social media, attracting an equally strong response from those who don't agree with them. What I find worrying is not actually the science around mental health, although that's important, but why it ignites such anger. As someone with mental illness, who also treats it and writes about it, I've seen and experienced this anger at first hand, and I suspect that there's more to it than is immediately apparent. When I was diagnosed with a serious mental illness, my first response was undiluted anger. I disliked and blamed the doctors who I felt had done this to me. I also felt a lot of disbelief and quite a lot of fear. 
Why me? I wondered. What does this mean about who I am? So I understand why people feel angry. Abstract debates about mental illness, its origins and treatments can seem personal. And I wonder if their anger is more about fear, about the fear of what it means to be mentally ill, as I felt when I was first diagnosed. At that time, I would have been a sitting duck for anyone who had tried to persuade me into conspiracy theories. In fact, I was halfway there already without anyone trying. I didn't think my doctors had my best interests at heart and I focused almost entirely on the negative aspects of the treatments they gave me. My family had no knowledge of mental illness or psychiatry and believed my interpretation. This didn't do me any good at all as they believed me when I said I wasn't ill and then became angry with me and confused themselves when I couldn't just get better. I will always be frightened of mental illness and of its treatments. Electroconvulsive therapy carries special fears for me and I will never want to take drugs long term. I understand that others can be frightened too, maybe in different ways, of the possibility of losing one's mind or of taking drugs that might dull the brain or swell the body. And I think that helps me understand why Moncrief's study provoked such a strong response. But I also think, from personal and professional experience, that angry debates about mental illness are not helpful to anyone, least of all those who are living with it long term. Achieving progress in this complex area requires clinicians to build trusting relationships, both with patients and each other, and to listen carefully to everyone's views. As the debate about antidepressants showed, you won't find much of this collaborative behaviour on Twitter. I have learnt a lot and made great friends on the platform, but when the anger starts to upset me, I know I need to step away. During the soaring temperatures of the July heatwave, Farmer Tom ran to the aid of a neighbour whose farm was alight. The 19th of July was the hottest day ever recorded in the UK, with temperatures exceeding 40 degrees Celsius. At 2pm the day after, I could smell smoke. I began to panic but a scan of my fields reassured me that it wasn't coming from our farm. The wind was blowing from our neighbour's field where, a mile away, an electricity cable sagging in the unprecedented heat had arced onto a hedgerow tree and started a fire. Our neighbour was working nearby, so our young farmhand Joe and I quickly located the blaze and raced to help, hoping to save the hundreds of acres of unharvested crops that would be quickly consumed by the fire. It was scary. Hearts racing, nerves on edge, all focused on one thing. We had hitched our cultivator, which we typically use to turn over the soil, to the biggest tractor. We bounced across fields and smashed down a gatepost that was too narrow to pass, before tilling the ground beside the blaze, creating a firebreak of tilled earth. Fire can move through crops faster than a man can run, but ploughed earth cannot burn. This simple action is the best way to stop a farm fire in its tracks. The fire brigade arrived just 10 minutes later and most importantly at the right location as we'd given them the precise grid reference using the what three words app which describes your phone's coordinates by labeling them with the unique three word combination. They quickly brought more than 100 meters of flaming hedgerow under control telling us that we were just a few minutes possibly just seconds from a much more disastrous outcome. We were only too aware of the risk to thousands of pounds worth of crops, barns and homes 
and of course to lives. Fire remains the biggest threat in the harvest field and there's hardly been a day during the harvest this year in July and August when I haven't seen black smoke somewhere on the horizon marking a combine harvester on fire or the white smoke of burning straw and harvest fields. It is terrifying. And that's why I start my day by using an air hose to blow dust off my combine in the cool of the early morning. It may take up to an hour to reach every crevice in the engine, but it's essential not to miss any place where straw might gather, heat up and begin to smoulder. I always answer my phone when driving in the field in case someone is calling to tell me that I'm on fire and haven't noticed. Many years ago, I was teaching our then 17-year-old farmhand to drive the combine. I told him that he needed to be constantly alert and that his sense of smell was the most important tool he had. When driving a combine for up to 16 hours a day, your nose should be primed to pick up a whiff of rubber from a belt slipping or the distinctive smell of hot engine oil. I may sound a little alarmist, but we've had near misses on occasion and that is close enough for me. In Australia, where they're accustomed to such conditions, harvest is banned when extremes of heat and wind coincide. But in the UK, we haven't had to learn that same caution as farmers and members of the public. We discard cigarettes, light Chinese lanterns and use disposable barbecues. But I hope that this summer has made us aware of what could happen. I hope that all the drivers and farmhands emerge from their two months of isolation in their combine cabins and go home safely to rest before planting the crops for next year and beginning the cycle all over again. Thank you so much for tuning into our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers in October and tune into our regular podcast, The Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. If you enjoyed hearing from our wonderful Lives columnists, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect from the newsstand now. Or go to our website, where you can read writing from this month, Cal Flynn, John Lloyd, Jeremy Bowen, Kamala Shamsi, and many more. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next time.